What's up, everybody? Welcome to Salt Company. Glad you're here. Glad you didn't melt in the rain or something. I really love that we had first summer, but then we had fourth winter. That was kind of a letdown. It's good to see you. Like Nicole said, we are in our Holy Habits series. Tonight we're talking about evangelism, about the holy habit of sharing the good news of Jesus with the lost, with, with non-Christians, which I'm sure to many of us, if not all of us in this room, sounds awkward and uncomfortable, something that you probably don't really want to do a whole lot of. And if I'm honest, I don't think I can actually describe myself as someone who has a habit of evangelizing, at least most of the time. I have, by God's grace, grown more comfortable in sharing the gospel, at least with some people. Honestly, I'm more like comfortable sharing the gospel with a total random stranger than with a family member that's known me uh, and loved me all of my life and known me before Jesus and seen all the crazy things I've done and all of that. But evangelism is something we're called to as followers of Jesus. And if I'm yeah, real with you guys, I don't think I share the gospel as much as I ought to. And so this message is as much for me as it is for you. And praise God that we're not made right with God, nor are we kept right with God by our kind of practices, our holy habits, right? We are not made right or kept right with God by our consistency or frequency in practicing any of these holy habits, and evangelism is included. We are not saved by what we do for God, but rather by what God has done for us in Christ, and that's the message that we're called to share. If you ask me, that's too good of news not to share. So if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts was written by Luke the same Luke that wrote the gospel according to Luke. Luke was a, a physician. He wasn't a paid uh, religious leader. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke wrote two books of our Bible, the gospel according to Luke, but then also this book, the Acts of the Apostles. It's a detailed account of what the Holy Spirit did in and through the church, the early church, as the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins began to be proclaimed explicitly, right? The Bible tells us that God had a plan from before the foundations of the world to save a people for himself, but in the resurrection of Jesus, this is when the people of God are unleashed and filled with power to go and proclaim what God has done, how his plan to save people for himself in Christ has come to be fully realized. So look with me at verse 8. At verse 8. It says this. But you will receive power. Jesus is talking here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they are as he's speaking. And in all Judea, the greater region that they're in, and Samaria even further out into the end of the earth. This verse really sets up what we read in the entire rest of the book. What we see the early church doing, the movement of the gospel, how it's expanding. Right before Jesus says this in verse 8, 
He's told his apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, where they are, until they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And they have some questions for him, and verse 8 is part of his response. He's clarifying that they need to wait, and they will receive the power of the Holy Spirit to witness. They are going to be witnesses. Witnesses are people who, who speak of what they have seen and heard. If you're a witness, you're someone who has seen or experienced something, maybe a crime, right? You might get called to testify in court something that you saw took place. You might be brought before a jury to testify of something that you saw, some criminal activity. Witnesses have something to tell. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes and gives power to the church, power to witness, power to speak of what they have seen and heard from Jesus. And you know what? They do. Like, it's almost like Jesus knows what is going to happen in the future, right? They do. They go and they proclaim. They do evangelism. Evangelism is almost on every single page of the book of Acts. And yet Luke, the author, he doesn't sugarcoat kind of how evangelism goes sometimes. He doesn't give us some, you know, kind of tamed version of how it goes when the early church is bold in sharing the gospel. Sometimes people get bothered. Sometimes people are enraged and offended because of how much the early followers of Jesus are evangelizing. Yet it's exactly what they're commanded to do by Jesus. Not only in Acts 1.8, but in the Great Commission that we read in Matthew 28. We can also see that in Mark 16. But you know what? While there are people who are offended, there are people who are annoyed, thousands upon thousands of people, just in the first few chapters of the book of Acts where the church begins to evangelize, get saved. Because God uses the proclamation of the gospel to bring people to saving faith in Christ. One of these instances is Acts chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, turn there to Acts chapter 4. It'll be on the screen as well. Let me just catch us up really quickly. First, in chapter 2, what takes place is Pentecost. You might have heard of Pentecost. It's when the Holy Spirit comes and in a powerful way fills these believers, fills the church, and then immediately what takes place in Acts chapter 2 is evangelism. The first ever Christian sermon preached in that chapter by Peter was evangelistic in nature. In chapter 3, a man who we're told is lame from birth is healed in a miraculous way by Peter and John. That's followed by more evangelism. And then the start of chapter 4 really is the continuation of the evangelism they're doing in chapter 3. So there's a ton of evangelism in the first couple chapters. Verse 1 says this, And as they were speaking to the people, as they're doing their evangelism, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in prison, or sorry, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. You might think that that didn't go so well, right? It doesn't sound like it went so well, but read verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
which adds on to the number of people that already were saved in Acts chapter 2. And scholars think that this is actually just talking about the actual number of males, the actual, actual number of men. So it would be fair to estimate that it, at least probably 10, 11,000 men and women have been saved because evangelism is taking place in these first couple chapters. Let's keep reading. We're going to fly through all the way down to verse 22. It says this, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all these guys who are mostly related to each other and in positions of power, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're referring to the healing that took place in Acts chapter 3 of the man lame from birth. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which, ha which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Okay, keep reading. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. In other words, let's get them to stop evangelizing. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them. And listen to what they say. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. These guys can't stop talking about Jesus. It didn't matter who was confronting them. The task of evangelism that they'd been charged with had to go on. It had to be fulfilled. Faithfulness is simply getting the gospel out. And God is sovereign over the result of the proclamation. For these guys, one day it's getting put in custody, the next it's released again. And all they're doing is sharing the gospel. And the most notable sign of all, right, there's, there's a notable sign that's being talked about here, the fact that they, through the power of Jesus, healed a man, 
Like that's provoking attention and all of this. But the most notable sign of all, you guys, is that God has shown his love for us in Christ. He's shown his love for the world on the cross and we cannot keep silent about it. That's what we must proclaim. That's what these people in the book of Acts are proclaiming. We need to take the whole gospel to the whole world relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And before we move on to kind of three parts of the message, what is evangelism, why we need to evangelize, and lastly, how to do it, I just simply want to stress the power of the Holy Spirit and the importance of the Holy Spirit in the act of evangelism. The Holy Spirit is the, the one who regenerates people's hearts, who changes people's hearts. Like, we don't actually, in evangelism, need to um, make people kind of decide on some emotional basis to choose Jesus. We don't need to elicit people's emotional response. Sometimes people need days to count the cost of following Jesus. Sometimes people need only seconds. But it's the Spirit's work to lead them to saving faith in Christ. And then back in Acts, right, where we read in verse 8, the apostles, they're not even told to evangelize until they receive the Holy Spirit. So both the proclaimer and the hearer need the Holy Spirit for evangelism to lead to someone's conversion, to someone's saving faith. And hear me now, if, if you're in Christ, you already have the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit indwelt you when you believed. Ephesians 1 would say you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit at the moment you believed. You don't need to wait to evangelize, but believer, let me ask you, are you praying for opportunities to share Christ with somebody? For the Spirit to move in you to share the gospel and for the Spirit to move in someone to lead them to faith? Okay, so what is evangelism? If, if you're taking notes, we're kind of going to be in three sections throughout the rest of the message. What is it, why we do it, and how to do it? Evangelism, simply put, you could say, is sharing the good news of Jesus in hopes of someone turning from sin to faith in Jesus. Sharing the good news of Jesus in hopes of someone turning from sin to faith in Jesus. It's presenting Christ as the crucified and risen Savior for sinners and inviting someone to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. Inviting them to turn from their sins and cling to Christ, to trust in his work in their place, to trust in his work on the cross where he atoned for sin and where he gives us by freely by grace his righteousness in exchange for our sin. I hope it helps to honestly talk about it for a minute in terms of what it's not. Evangelism is not just your personal testimony. You might share the gospel as you share what God has done in your life and how you came to know Jesus. But unless you make it clear to the person that you're speaking to that God wants them to become a follower of Jesus, you haven't evangelized. 
you need to share what God has done for them and make it clear that he is offering them salvation. And oftentimes, sharing what God has done in our life is one of the things that God uses to provoke people's interest. Friends and family should hear us talk about what God is doing in our life. But evangelism is presenting Christ as the Savior to someone in a pointed way that makes it clear that in order for them to be on the right side of God's holy and just wrath, they need the blood of Christ shed for them to cover them. And so you need to communicate the very content of the gospel that Jesus lived a sinless life, died as a substitutionary sacrifice, and is victoriously risen. And that we must trust in him alone to be saved. Evangelism is also not telling somebody that they just need to ask Jesus into their heart to not go to hell. Jesus isn't eternal fire insurance. The gospel is not good news because Jesus offers eternal fire insurance or anything like that. He came to reconcile us to God. In other words, the gospel is good news not just because we don't go to hell, but because those who believe will spend eternity forever with God, who is glorious and majestic and awesome. And in eternity, we'll be worshiping and enjoying him forever. And if you miss that, if that isn't part of the gospel and the most beautiful part of the gospel, if you don't long to bask in the presence of God forever, you're not going to enjoy heaven. Evangelism requires us to open our mouths. Have you ever heard the saying, preach the gospel if necessary, use words? It's kind of not all true. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it's a load of crap. The heart behind someone saying that isn't always wrong. They might desperately want people to know Jesus. And they're right. How we live matters. How we live matters. We're called to love one another. We're called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But we need to communicate how to be saved in evangelism. There's this well-known story of an unbelieving man who had a Christian boss. And his boss kind of lived out this preach the gospel if necessary, use words, life. And one day, this man, he was led to Christ by someone else. One day, this man came to his boss and said, I became a Christian. And the boss said, that's great. I've been praying for you. And the new believer, this employee, right, of the boss, he was shocked. He said, why didn't you ever tell me you were a Christian? And the boss said, or sorry, the employee said, you were the very reason I have not been interested in the gospel all these years. And the conversation continued something like this. How can that be? Asked the boss. I've done my very best to live the Christian life around you. That's the point, the employee said. You've lived such a model life without telling me that it was Christ who made the difference. I convinced myself that you could live, if you could live such a life good and happy without Christ, then I could too. Doesn't that make your jaw drop? Like, could it be that you're convincing people around you that they don't need Jesus 
simply by never speaking of him. Author Donald Whitney says, the example of Christianity saves no one. Rather, it is the message of Christianity, the gospel, that is the power of God for salvation. That's Romans 1.16, like we read at the beginning. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. When we speak it, the very power of God is coming off of our lips. So why do we need to do it? And also why oftentimes we don't. Firstly, and really the only reason I think we need to have is that Jesus commands us to. Hopefully you don't need additional reasons, right? Jesus commands us to. In order to make disciples, we first need to share the gospel for disciples to be made. He's given us orders to evangelize. And his orders along these lines don't have us stop just at making someone, you know, into a disciple, but helping them begin to follow Jesus, grow as a Christ follower, grow in grace and in maturity through discipleship. We also do it, secondly, because everyone lives forever somewhere. Like, hell is real. We've been confronted with this reality as we've been going through the book of Revelation. If you've been with us on Sundays, we've seen in the book of Revelation that God is just and holy, and he is a final judge. People have souls People are made in God's image, but they've rebelled against him, and they need to hear us open our mouths. They need to hear us tell them how they can be reconciled to God. And I, like I said, I oftentimes don't. We don't. Like, we don't want to offend people. There's this Barna study done a few years ago that found almost half of practicing Christian millennials, 47%, they agreed that it's at least somewhat wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And so what I am saying is so opposite to that, that this you know, study would find probably half this room thinks that I'm just ridiculous right now. That's a problem. It's not, that's just a position that's not shaped by scripture. It's shaped by what culture would say. That we shouldn't impose our beliefs on someone, that we shouldn't share with people outside of our religion. But I would simply just say, it's not loving to never speak of Jesus if you really believe Jesus is who he said he was and did what he says, did what he did. Sometimes we don't because we're lazy and we're comfortable. We think God is just going to drop someone right in front of us and ask us, how do you become a Christian? Or what is the message of Christianity? And I'm telling you, you might not be prepared for that conversation if that even was to happen if you don't proactively share the gospel at times and begin to establish a holy habit of sharing the gospel when the Spirit leads you to do it. Another common one is we think we don't know enough. 
that we aren't equipped enough. But Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit to understand Scripture. You have the Holy Spirit to help you share Christ. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you that that is all you need. Like, I, I don't really want to hear if there was a recording of the first couple times that I spoke about Jesus in high school. I don't. Like, I don't want to know. It probably wasn't all accurate. In fact, I know it wasn't. I wasn't super ready. I didn't know my Bible well. But God used that. He used those times, I'm convinced, even if no one came to saving faith or heard the gospel explicitly, to, to begin to provoke some people to ask, who is Jesus? What am I going to do with the Bible? What am I going to do with Jesus? What do I believe? To at least in some way ask spiritual questions. And so, let me say this. It's one thing not to feel ready to share the gospel. It's a whole nother thing to be content staying there. And hopefully, even in this time together tonight, we'll get to some practical application, practical ways of sharing the gospel. But before we get to there, I first just want to say, I really think we need the other holy habits, especially the other the holy habits of Bible reading and prayer, to not burn out in evangelism. I would even go so far as to say, if you don't have regular rhythms of Bible reading and prayer, you're probably not going to want to share Jesus very often. You might not be able to do it very well from the Bible, and you might not ever feel convicted of the times that you aren't doing it. But I'm telling you that sharing the gospel, at least for me, and I think it can be, I believe, I pray it can be for you, is one of the, the most joyful things that I get to do in following Jesus. Like, we talk about what we love. We do. Like, if you're an NBA fan, you're probably talking about the playoffs. If you're, you know, into, I don't know, some other thing, you probably talk about that. Lots of people don't actually watch the playoffs, okay? I know. But it's, it's also worth saying this before we kind of get into practical things, right? Not everyone is going to share the gospel in the same way, in the same places. But every follower of Jesus is called to share like, you might find it easier to share in certain places. You might find it easier to share with a friend next to you that knows Jesus. None of that is wrong. You're called to share. Like, here, here are just some ideas. You could eat a meal once a week with an unbeliever and ask them questions about their life. Praying for the right opportunity to begin to talk about Jesus, or at least ask them some spiritual questions showing interest in an unbeliever's life oftentimes is one of the things that God uses to help kind of establish a relationship that makes it even better to deliver the gospel, but we're not always called to just wait for weeks and months and years to share Christ with someone. But moving slow sometimes is how you might feel led by the Spirit. Moving slow and even continuing to be invested in someone's life even when they've rejected Jesus once or twice is going to speak volumes. It's going to speak loudly to them. You could bring 
another believing friend. Maybe you have a mutual friend. Maybe you and a believer have a mutual friend that doesn't know Jesus. The two of you together can share the gospel. Leaning on each other. Like it's, it's at least 50% less awkward, right, if you have a friend. Is that how the math works? I don't know. Like, but awkward conversations change lives, you guys. They do. They change eternities. I think Jordan said that, so quote Jordan. But let's get, let's get more practical, okay? Oh, one, one more. This is a practical, but not like an exactly how to share the gospel. You could literally go up to your friend who doesn't know Jesus and say, hey, we need to have a conversation about Jesus. When would you like to do that? I think that's actually how Matt Chandler, a pastor you guys might have heard of, he came to Christ by someone who, a teammate of his, who in a locker room just said that to him and said, when are we doing this? When are we talking about Jesus, man? Because I got to tell you about Jesus. Pretty bold and upfront, but maybe some of you will take that and run with it. So let's get practical, okay? How to share the actual content of the gospel. You could use a verse or a couple verses. Some verses you could use if you're taking notes. Verses I love to use are Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, or Titus 3, 3 through 5. Now, both of these verses, these places in Scripture, they don't explicitly talk about Jesus dying, living, dying, and raising to new life, but they do make it very clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. So you need to communicate to them what Jesus has done but also show them this is how you receive Jesus. This is how salvation comes to you. It comes to you by grace. Communicate that. You could do the Romans road. Who's heard of the Romans road? Raise your hand. All right, some people know the Romans road. Okay, let's do the Romans road a little bit together. Let's get on the road. Buckle up. All right, Romans, flip to Romans. You could go to Romans 3. You could begin there. I don't know if there's like an official, like you have to make all these stops, but th- these are my stops for tonight. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These aren't on the screen, by the way, I'm sorry. Um, you can start with the bad news on the road. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then you could flip on over to Romans 6, 23. Tell them some more bad news. But there's also good news here, too. It says, for the wages of sin is death. So all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and what sin earns is death. Not good. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You just delivered some good news. The free gift. How do you receive the free gift? Flip to Romans 10. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Help them receive the free gift because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or made right with God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Three simple stops in Romans. Romans 3, 23, 6, 23, and Romans 10, 9, and 10. The last one, I'll tell you, is more for visual people. You could Google the old bridge diagram, okay? I don't have a picture of it because there was just a million to choose from. There's lots of great bridge diagrams with other scriptures that you can go to as you're sharing the gospel with someone. 
the bridge diagram, right? It makes clear the fact that there's a chasm between us and God, that we cannot get to God, that we are separated from him. But the cross fills the chasm. It makes the way to God possible. Salt Company, if you hear me say anything tonight about evangelism, hear me say that God saves people through the proclamation of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So Salt Company, what if we had a culture of evangelism? Like what if we had a culture of evangelism, a holy habit of evangelism? What would God do? I think we would see before our very eyes more people come to Jesus. That's an experience of God's grace that I want for you. Like I want that to encourage you and put wind in your sails. I want you to have the joy of sharing Christ with someone. Like I don't want you to miss out on an experience that God might have for you. An experience that's meant to bring you joy. One that's meant to help you keep in love with Jesus and what he's done for you. Like I'm most amazed by the gospel when I'm actually telling the gospel to someone else. And so if you're here tonight and you've never trusted in Christ, I'm inviting you to do that. I'm inviting you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. He is able to save you. He has shown his love for you on the cross where he died in your place. He took all of the punishment that the holy and just wrath of God demands. He stood in your place and he is inviting you to himself. He's offering you life and joy he wants you to come to him. I'm inviting you. Follow Jesus. And so will you pray with me? Pray with me to follow Jesus. Salt Company, if you're someone who would say you're already a follower of Jesus, I want to pray with you and for you that we would be filled with the Spirit to share the gospel boldly and witness obediently. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that the gospel has come to us, that you have offered us salvation. You've come to, you've come to show us your love. We see on the cross your hatred of our sin, and yet, Right there on the cross, we see your, your love for us. That you would die in our place. Jesus, I pray that you would draw people to yourself, Spirit. That you would cause people in this room who are far from you to in an instant be close to you through the work of your Son. And God, I pray for the believers in this room that you would give us boldness, that you would give us a desire to share 
of what you've done for us, that we would speak of you and of your salvation because there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, God. Help us to share with love and compassion. Help us to never shift from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. We love you. Thank you that you first loved us. Pray in your name.